With perspective, we get to see issues, problems, solutions, and thoughts in a different light. A problem might end up seeming bigger or small. With perspective, the solutions might end up being infinite or limited. Chemshabongo is a podcast that seeks to trigger a change in how you perceive things, how you react to events, and how you approach things that you do. We do this by hosting a number of voices, presenting their different perspectives. For the last part of the show, we'll be having an excerpt of Not Here to Huru, read by Obi Obiero Diambo. By the end of this episode, we hope that you find more power in what is behind your eyes and stop focusing solely on what is in front of them. This is Chimshabongo. Now, optics is a very important thing. What things look like. It's more important at certain times in history. When a major constitutional moment arose, such as the BBI ruling by the Supreme Court, and it was made, this is a very important moment. Number one, the Supreme Court bench with three women, with the president and the deputy president, both women, shows that this country has taken a great stride towards the empowerment of women. It was wonderful to see three out of the seven judges of the Supreme Court being women. This is wonderful. Now, the second thing, which is not very flattering, is the outfits of the Supreme Court judges. Not so impressive, especially given that retired Justice Motunga had attempted to try and decolonize the image of the Supreme Court by changing their outfits. Can this decolonization agenda proceed? Why dress in those robes in 2021 in a country in Africa where the court itself proceeds to declare the sovereignty of the people? The question that emerges is who are the people that they declare is sovereign? The biggest problem I have is with the language of the judgment, English. The final orders are as follows. One, the basic structure doctrine is not applicable in Kenya. Ibrahim, Supreme Court judge dissenting. Such a momentous pronouncement should have been made in the language of the sovereign, the people, Kiswahili. Kiswahili would have given direct access to the judgment to the ordinary Kenyan. Kiswahili would have removed the knowledge and information brokers who try through analysis and all sorts of commentaries to act as the intermediaries between Kenyans and this important pronouncement. Kiswahili would have asserted this same sovereignty that the Kenyan people are reminded of by the Supreme Court. Granted, the judges might have been unable to render their ruling in Kiswahili because of their training which is in itself colonial, but translation of the summaries they read would have been undertaken and the judges would have read the Kiswahili version. It might have been really tedious listening to them rendering themselves in Kiswahili because they positioned themselves as not being competent in the language, but so was listening to them in the English language. Now, decolonization begins with decolonizing the mind. We, the sovereign people, should demand that all the landmark Supreme Court rulings are made in Kiswahili, considering especially that 
Almost 70% of the members of the National Assembly in Kenya are not competent in the English language, and that is even before we talk about the county assemblies. And therefore, the political class who really need to understand this, chances are will have the ruling read to them because they will not get it. Now, the rest of the Wananchi who are sovereign have been denied an opportunity to engage with the ruling except through brokers. And this decolonization agenda needs to proceed. As we continue to observe the huge expansion of our transport infrastructure, we must celebrate this fact. But we must also observe this. There's a big lesson our highway authorities seem to be missing. And this is just how big their responsibility is in this nation. Highways facilitate the smooth flow of traffic and to connect us to our destinations. That is indisputably important for the economy and we must rightly reward the efforts that have gone into the provision of this infrastructure. Highways, however, become the most ubiquitous shared space on the road. Every citizen in one way or the other, gets to use the highway. The network becomes a great unifier as each of us is supposed to follow the same protocols in using it. On the highways, we get a powerful expression of the values that we share together. When you venture out, you have a sense of what your fellow citizens expect of you. Right there, you have the highways as an expression and a determinant of our conduct towards each other. This is why the authorities in charge of this space need to pay careful attention. Order in this public space communicates to all that order is expected of all of us. Disorder communicates that chaos and disorganizations are tolerated. The expression of order comes in elements like the lane markings and the whole gamut of road signs. It also comes in the organization evident in the activities that front the highways, the pedestrian walkways, the bus stops, the parking areas. The goal of this organization is to clarify who uses what space. Our highways and the spaces adjoining them, the road reserves, have unfortunately become a theater of conflict and one must wonder what impact this is having on the national psyche. The conflict is fundamentally about who gets to use what space. Pedestrians have to fight it out with motorists while both are watching out for the two-wheelers. In many such spaces, Small traders have set camp, keen on a quick sale. The resultant cacophony, which in some parts of the city is frighteningly intense, gives succor to mischievous characters and makes the most vulnerable members of the community very uncomfortable. It makes for a very frustrating and stressful existence. And so we must ask, are the highway authorities aware of the heavy responsibility they have to project order in society. If we continue to allow a state of lawlessness to be the prevalent expression on this all-important space, the highway network, are we going to live with the slow creep of anarchy that the situation precipitates? We need to quickly wake up to the danger the nation faces from this lack of discernible order on our streets and our highways. And now for this week's excerpt of Not Yet to Huru, read by Obi Obiero Diambo. 
Not Yet Uhuru, the autobiography of Oginga Odinga, with a foreword by Kwame Nkrumah. Forward. A turning point has now been reached in Africa's history. After years of patient effort to achieve the total political and economic emancipation of the continent by peaceful means, only limited results have been achieved, and it has become essential to adopt a more militant and positive strategy. Recent developments in Africa, for example, the outbreak of military coups and the continuance of Ian Smith's illegal government, have demonstrated the ruthless and insidious nature of Africa's enemies. The imperialists and neocolonialists are acting in strength and in unity. Africans must do the same. To know the enemy is to be equipped to defeat him. Ordinary men and women throughout Africa, even those living in the most remote villages, are now talking the language of the African Revolution. They speak of unity and are prepared for the next, more realistic phase of the struggle. In fact, a situation has arisen in which the people of Africa are ahead of their governments in that they have accepted the idea of unity while their leaders, in many cases, continue to hold back or to proceed too slowly. But pressure from below will inevitably force the pace onwards and nothing can halt the process towards union government. It is clearer than ever that the political union of Africa, which has been one of my main preoccupations since the attainment of independence by Ghana, is the key to Africa's economic and political stability, peace and progress. A union government of Africa backed by organized military power with sound continental economic planning, is bound to compel nations outside Africa to respect our collective interests. States with imperialist tendencies, however powerful, will tremble before taking unilateral decisions to interfere in our affairs. Economically, no state in Africa, however less gifted by nature, need be afraid of this development and progress within the Union. For economic development on a continental scale implies harnessing and harmonizing Africa's vast physical and mineral resources for the benefit of the whole mass of people of the continent. In any event, with the achievement of a Union government, Africa could have an effective say in external economic relations and activities, including trade and international flow of funds. The story that my friend and fellow freedom fighter Jaramogi Oginga Odinga of Kenya has told in this book is reminiscent of many a biography in Africa. For the African nationalists who nourishes genuine feelings for his people and for Africa is bound to be the victim of oppression and persecution during colonial rule. In every program arranged by the colonialists for Africans, it is often easy to see the shameful designs intended to hoodwink the unwary, whether it is in school or college or in any type of institution, so long as it is run by the colonialists for colonial people, this is generally the case. Kenya, under colonial rule, 
unlike the average colony in West Africa, was plagued with settler problems. Consequently, the liberation struggle in Kenya was bound to be one of the most dramatic in the history of the continent. It is therefore no surprise that the political life of a person like Jeremogio Gingodinga should have been as challenging as it is. It is one of the merits of this autobiography that it tells a story of events which are characteristic of the life of freedom fighters under colonial rule. The Mau Mau uprising in Kenya brought even closer Ghana's attention to the struggle of our brothers in Kenya. I had declared at Ghana's independence that our freedom would be meaningless unless the liberation of the whole continent was linked with it. We naturally felt gravely concerned and in fact became closely associated with the liberation struggle in other parts of Africa. It was, therefore, a matter of sincere gratification to us that within a few years following our own independence, many other erstwhile colonial territories should join the family of free and sovereign African states. It was in order to eradicate totally and completely foreign rule and domination from Africa and to fortify the continent against the turbulent world of power politics that we bent our concerted efforts towards unity. It is in this sense that I considered the establishment of the OAU as an important step forward from which we had quickly to move on to the formation of a union government of Africa. It is my view that in the interest of African unity, there should be no political or economic regrouping or blocks in Africa in alliance with any ex-colonial power or any foreign power for that matter, unless economic groupings in Africa are established only under the aegis and umbrella of an all-African Union government, they will be detrimental to our pan-African growth. Although political independence is a noble achievement in the struggle against colonialism, neocolonialism and imperialism, its effectiveness is superficial unless economic and cultural independence is also achieved. The road to the attainment of economic and cultural independence is beset with neocolonialism, which is becoming even more menacing to newly independent states than orthodox colonialism. I find it gratifying, indeed, that Oginga Odinga has given me this opportunity to write a foreword for his autobiography. It is my hope and belief that those who read this book will see even more clearly the need for the peoples of Africa to come together in a closely knit political union in pursuit of their common aspirations and common objectives. Kwame Nkrumah in Conakry, 14th June 1966. Listen to Chemsha Bongo on our website, acute.co.ke. Chemsha Bongo is an acute media production.